This podcast was produced in Melbourne on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land. I'm Jude Ellison, and this is The Kicker, a weekly podcast bringing you stories from Australia's newest journalists. Australian housing was in crisis before the pandemic, but COVID-19 impacts are making the situation worse. Home prices are rising, and so is the need for solutions. Some advocates say tiny houses can help, but they're not easy to get. Tiny house hopefuls face infuriatingly inconsistent regulations and hostile policies. So one advocacy group is taking on the red tape Goliath. Reporter Mariah Edgoose has the story. Tiny Houses, the big picture. So these tiny houses on wheels, what's what's the appeal of them? Why do folks like this particular kind of tiny house? There's not really one singular reason behind why someone might choose to go tiny, uh, just like there isn't one type of tiny house. Not so long ago, I owned a normal suburban two-storey, three-bedroom house. And if I still owned that, then I'd be in debt for the next 28 years. The lifestyle. I think also the financial freedom. So that's probably the biggest part for us. We don't want to be tied down to a job. So, Mariah, let's start way big picture here. What is a tiny house? Well, the tiny house sector is really diverse. It encompasses many kinds of tiny builds. And here in Australia, where the sector is not as big as, say, overseas, there's really been few attempts to define tiny houses. And so to really examine uh, the sector in Australia, it's helpful to look at what Uh, is arguably the archetypal tiny house, which is the movable tiny house, a tiny house on wheels. And when we say tiny, uh, these dwellings are usually maximum of 50 square metres and commonly around 30, but even that's up for debate. The tiny house movement has been a hit as holiday accommodation and now the first has been approved for long-term residency in the city. Elle Patton has just moved into her 20 square metre dwelling with councils flagging it as a potential way to tackle homelessness. Academics Heather Shearer and Paul Burton who uh, have written a couple of research papers on tiny houses in Australia They attempted to define tiny houses by structural factors uh, such as mobility and design, as well as non-structural factors like sustainability uh, and community. They also found that freedom was a key motivation um, in the tiny house sector. And what freedom means to individuals, um, is it's different for everybody, but certainly tiny houses have the appeal of economic freedom. With that particular appeal thing, I don't know if it's just because I'm originally from the States, but like I immediately, if I think of like this house is all about freedom, I go straight to the US. Is it a popular thing there? Is it more popular here? What's kind of the landscape around that? For sure. So tiny houses, um, probably the most established sector can be found in the US. So they gained popularity in the US um, in the 1990s. And the tiny houses that we're talking about here really belong to a handful of developed um, countries, Australia included. 
And going back to, you know, the movable tiny house, what's happening here in Australia is advocacy and a big push to define tiny houses and really steer them into the mainstream. So I spoke to the uh, Australian Tiny House Association's president, Janine Strawn, who is also the founder of Tiny House Solutions. Movable tiny houses are tiny houses that are on trailers or on skids that can be moved from one place to another but they are designed for permanent living or permanent occupation. So the, the benefit of having a movable tiny house allows people to hopefully either purchase you know, their own land if, they, if they're in a position to, or lease or license a section of land from another person who owns enough land to position a, tiny, a movable tiny house onto. Can you elaborate a bit on why people might be kind of headed away from the traditional housing market and seeking the freedom that you talked about earlier? Yeah, so in Australia, we know we have a problem with housing inequality, um, which in turn is driving wealth inequality. Rising house costs uh, have widened the divide between those who own houses um, and those who don't. Um, People who, for instance, rent Basically, our housing market works really well for those who are already in the housing market. Um, So, you know, occupiers um, of homes and investors too. Here we can throw in the term uh, housing financialization, which is when uh, housing is treated as more of a commodity than a, a way to live as a home and there's obviously many layers to this and many losers as well in this scheme and there's, there's a need to listen and respond to the cries for more affordable housing by those in the private rental private market from low and even middle income earners as well as those in the long queues for non-market housing. From 45 and above over 410,000 women are, are indicated to become homeless in the next couple of years this is a, a blight on our society. There's so many different reasons why women are a key area of in need for alternative housing. Older people without assets, they are hugely at risk at falling into this great divide. And also they're in a situation where they don't have enough money to purchase, but they might just have a bit of money or access to some funds where they could uh, pay off a home. But the thing is, they might not be able to afford to pay off, you know, a larger property with, that comes with land. So, Mariah, that sounds really concerning. Where do tiny houses come in as far as addressing those specific problems? Speaking to uh, Janine about this, about where tiny houses fit, they don't, they don't fit everywhere. But uh, movable tiny homes are being propositioned as alternative housing for certain people, uh, certain sections of the community, many of which, as I just mentioned, are underserved in the current housing market. Okay, but Australians have some of the biggest homes in the world. Are they really keen to downsides to tiny homes? Well, not only that, we're, uh, we're also, we also favour detached homes. The 2016 census, for example, uh, reported that 73% of all Australian dwellings were detached homes. So those numbers give us a good idea of what is the norm in Australia, but 
Unfortunately, it's really hard to paint a picture, um, an accurate picture of tiny house living in Australia because, yeah, we don't actually know how many people are living tiny and that has a lot to do with people uh, actively avoiding the count um, due to insecurity in the tiny house sector at the moment. Um, but Janine, who has also worked in sustainable design for many, many years, she assured me that the interest is there. Absolutely. The interest level in tiny houses is huge. You know, we've got uh, just on just a few Facebook pages alone, there's over well over 55,000 people. Not all of them will necessarily aspire to live in a tiny house. But the thing is, they might... Um, want to support others in their choice of living tiny. You were saying that the um, current market isn't meeting needs, but obviously people can't seem to get into tiny houses either. Talk me through that red tape, Hal. What are Australians dealing with if they try to live small? They're dealing with quite a range of things depending on depending on where they live. So the problems identified by the Australian Tiny House Association or ATHA are that movable tiny houses are not defined or recognised in any uh, state planning legislation, um, not in the National Construction Code or National Vehicle Regulations. So uh, in Australia, the majority of councils would actually define tiny houses as caravans. And if that's the case, uh, there are restrictions on how long you can you know, be in, and dwell um, in a caravan. As well, like you can live in uh, a tiny house on wheels as accommodation for 365 days a year because it's deemed accommodation. But if it's deemed as a dwelling you, in many areas around Australia, you're not allowed to live in a caravan where it's deemed as a caravan if it's got wheels for more than three days out of 28 if you're in WA for sometimes 28 days or 60 days or 90 days in other parts of Victoria. And those restrictions are really baffling. I had a read of Janine's uh, comments and I have to admit, I ended up like it probably took me four times reading through it to even begin to understand. Like I was getting like the nervous sweats and I don't even live in a tiny home, but I was like, oh my God, this is so stressful. Absolutely. It is very stressful. And it's obviously a major barrier for anyone looking at tiny homes as a permanent dwelling. Um, and a permanent dwelling is what they're, is what they're designed to be. us I think to the upcoming campaign from um, AFA. What's the group hoping to accomplish with this campaign? Earlier this year AFA released an alternative local law position paper um, and that's going to form part of their Australia-wide campaign uh, that's set to start toward the, the in the end quarter of, of this year. With AFA what we've incorporated or what we've developed is an alternative local law for tiny houses not for caravans, not for camping, but for living permanently in a tiny house under a five-year permit process so people can have security when that they go and, get, uh, go and apply for a local law permit, then they can actually be part of the community for at least, at least a five-year period, and, but hopefully for it to be renewed as well. Critics point out that even if someone 
like Janine were to say that oh tiny houses aren't you know the solution they're a part of it the part that they are doesn't really help people who don't already have substantial savings or assets what are your thoughts on that yeah so it's definitely not just people who are after uh, affordable housing that are in and interested in the tiny house sector there are people who might purchase or or build a tiny home as a second dwelling tiny houses don't necessarily disrupt housing financialization and and issues associated with that and two in terms of where you're going to park the tiny house um, that land whether it's being leased if it's being bought maybe you're parking on it with some other kind of arrangement that will have a big impact on whether it's actually an affordable option But despite those issues, both planners and tiny house advocates say that there is land around us that is underutilised. And Janine talks about this in the way of reimagining the backyard. Without such a campaign as Athers, tiny houses, they're not a secure option for those already in insecure housing. People need to have the knowledge that they're not going to be told to, you know, move on and move their tiny house somewhere else. That's not sustainable or secure housing. Mariah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So far, tiny houses have slipped between the cracks. And poetically, people who have done the same stand to benefit from them. Atha's campaign seeks to improve the status quo, both for the homes and those who need them. If it succeeds, Australian tiny houses could make it big. You've been listening to The Kicker, brought to you by the RMIT Graduate Diploma of Journalism. For more in-depth stories, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That was the final episode of The Kicker, Season 2. We'll be back next year with brand new stories from a new host of Australian journalists. All episodes of The Kicker were written, researched, recorded and produced by students of the RMIT Graduate Diploma in Journalism. Follow The Kicker on Twitter at KickerPod and on Instagram at thekicker.pod. This season was produced by James Gaunt and Ryland Sack and executive produced by Janak Rogers. The theme music was written by Ryland Sack. Mm-hmm.